to help us understand more fully what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. And Lord, I pray that you would also help us to understand what the author of Hebrews was talking about when he talked about the way that all these patriarchs died in faith, not receiving what was promised, and yet looking forward to it. Lord, teach us to live as they did, and teach us to believe that that you were preparing something, you are preparing something better, and that apart from us, this will not be brought to pass. Lord, we pray that you would do your work in us now and help us to live out the gospel. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 50. And we will be looking at the last chapter of the, of the first book of the Bible. And what we're going to see here is uh, more death. Uh, Jacob dies. We were looking uh, last week at the way that Jacob's own preparation for his death helps us to know how to prepare to die, how to say what needs to be said, how to put things in order, and how to look forward to what God has promised, how to die in hope. And that continues in this passage. And something else profound and significant happens in this passage. And uh, it, it has to do with the way that as Moses depicts the death and burial of Jacob, he also points forward to the exodus from Egypt. It's really, it's remarkable. And it communicates, I think, that the details of our individual lives tie into the larger, the larger project that God is accomplishing, the larger story that God is telling across the scriptures. And so as we begin to think together at, about Genesis 50 this morning, uh, I want to read to begin with what the author of Hebrews said, to which I alluded in my prayer so hear the words of Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 to 16. The author of Hebrews writes of these patriarchs that we've been looking at in Genesis, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And we've seen as we've gone through Genesis that they didn't receive the land of promise. They, they died not having received the land, the seed, and the blessing. But having seen them, And greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have have had opportunity to return. And I think the author of Hebrews has in in view the way that they they could have stayed in Egypt and enjoyed luxury. Or they could have gone back to Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham came out from. And then he continues, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The author of Hebrews seems to be suggesting that as these patriarchs died, they were looking forward to the new Jerusalem in the land of promise. And and that is where the promise 
the promise of land will be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth in the resurrection. And he touches on uh, the, the death that we'll read about uh, today, uh, saying down in verse 22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And then lastly, let me read to you verses 39 and 40 from Hebrews 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And I think the making perfect that he has in view is their resurrection from the dead and their enjoyment of uh, the new creation. And they're not going to experience that apart from us being included in it. So look with me now at uh, Genesis 50. And the first thing I want to do is, is point out um, a structural feature of the passage that shows us really how the, how the passage is broken down. And to, to see this, we have to start at the end of 49, at the end of Genesis 49. So I want to draw your attention to the way that in Genesis 49, 29, we read that Jacob commanded his sons and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And you'll remember the way that Abraham acquired that piece of property and buried Sarah there back in Genesis 23. And then look over at, at Genesis chapter 50, and we see in verse 13, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And so what we see there is that this, the unit of text between those two references to that cave that Abraham bought they're bracketed by this reference to this cave. Jacob giving instructions that he's to be buried there, and then the sons carrying, it out, carrying those instructions out and burying their father in that cave. At the end of Genesis 49, we read that Jacob breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 50, where the first thing we see is the appropriate grief of Joseph in response to the death of his father. So this passage, it's going to, to speak to us at several levels. At one level, Joseph is mourning, cast down in woe, mourning the death of his father. And this is fully appropriate to, to respond this way to the death of a loved one. So look with me at Genesis 50 verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So Joseph's beloved father Jacob has now expired. His earthly life has come to an end. And Joseph is grieving this. But Moses is not only showing us the appropriateness of, of a son's grief over his father's death... He's also going to point beyond the immediate circumstances to a broader and more significant story that will actually help anyone grieving to, to work through that grief and to be able to move beyond that grief. And so look at what we read here next in verse 2. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And just a note on that word, physicians, 
uh, the, you know, this is an English word, uh, but, but the, the Hebrew term, you could render this Hebrew term healers. Joseph commanded the healers. And it's an interesting feature of the text because in, in this uh, Egyptian ritual of embalming people, often it's the priests that would be involved in this. But Joseph doesn't summon the priests to carry out Egyptian ritual embalming. Rather, surprisingly, I think, he summons healers to minister to the dead man. And I think that's suggestive. I think that Moses wants us to see the dissonance between these healers ministering to the dead man because Moses wants us to, be, to start thinking toward what's going to come after this. And this next phrase of verse 2, I think, is intentionally laden with significance. Moses writes, So the healers embalmed Israel. And you note the change from the name of Jacob to the name Israel. It's as though Jacob, the patriarch, has died, but the death of the patriarch is anticipating the resurrection of the nation of Israel, which will be in Moses' next chapter. So again, I would, I would suggest to you that Moses probably brought out Genesis, intending for it to be read in conjunction with Exodus and, and the, the other books of the Pentateuch that follow. And when we read these two chapters, or the, Genesis 50 and, and the, the book that follows, when we read these together, it's almost as though the nation is resurrected from the dead when they're brought out of Egypt. And I would suggest that Moses is thinking of the land of promise in terms of the realm of life, where they will dwell with God. And they've gone out of the realm of life, almost like they've left the, the holy garden where God walks with man in the cool of the day. And they've gone down into Egypt. And there, essentially, it was as though Joseph died. They thought he was dead. Jacob thought Joseph was dead. It was almost as though Egypt was a kind of sheol into which the nation descended. And, and, and it's like a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying and bringing forth much fruit. Because there in Egypt, we're going to see in, in the next chapter, in Exodus 1, they're going to be fruitful and multiply, and then eventually they're going to come up out of that land and re-enter the land of life. An, a nation, as a new Israel, as it were, resurrected from the dead. So I think these, these words here in verse 2, so the healers embalmed Israel, I think these are, are, this is a very significant statement that Moses is making, anticipating the resurrection of the nation from their death in the land of Egypt. So, at one level, Joseph is mourning the death of his father. And at another level, Moses is looking at this and he's saying something like, the death of Jacob is communicating the gospel story. I mean, Moses wouldn't have put it that way necessarily. But it's as though he's saying, the death of Jacob is anticipating the exodus from Egypt, which is anticipating the ultimate salvation that God is going to accomplish on behalf of his people. And I would suggest that this indicates that, that Jacob's life is about something so much bigger than Jacob's life. You hear what I'm saying there? Jacob's life is about something so much bigger than Jacob's life. And that's true of your life too. 
Our lives are about something so much bigger than the details of our lives. And in the same way that the details of Jacob's life and death here are going to point beyond themselves, so also I would suggest to you that every act of self-sacrificial service, every crucifixion of your flesh, every, uh, take, every instance of you taking up the cross to follow after Jesus... The details of your life pointing beyond themselves to, to the, this bigger and better and truer story. That, that doesn't mean that the details are invalidated. It doesn't mean that, that the grief of Joseph is insignificant. No, it, it means that the details are enriched and deepened with a greater significance. So verse 3 Forty days were required for the embalming, for that is how many days are required for embalming. Um, it, it's interesting, this, this language of them being required in the Hebrew text, it, it says 40 days were fulfilled for it, for that's how many days uh, fulfill the embalming. So it's almost like there are suggestions of fulfillment here. And the Egyptians wept for him seven days. And then... Uh, all through the, the, the statements that follow, which are going to describe um, the, the, the burial of Jacob, words for bury and burying place are, are going to occur and recur 14 or 15 times. You're going to get references to burial or to the burying place. And, and the, the ESV renders the burying place as tomb. So, you know, if they were to bring this across... Uh, the way the Hebrew does it, you would have something like uh, burying place, or you would say he was entombed in the tomb to, to capture the way that both of those concepts are related to one another uh, in, in, in the Hebrew language. Um, so there, there's going to be all this reference to burying and burying places, and there are also going to be all these, all these statements that, that sound exactly like the descriptions of the Exodus from Egypt. And I'll draw attention to these as we go, go forward, but it, it just makes and remakes the point, again, as I've said, that uh, the, the healer's embalming of Israel anticipates the resurrection of the nation at the exodus from Egypt. So in verse 4, uh, it, it reads, and when the days of weeping for him were past, um, and, and uh, the, the first word of that verse if we were to, you know, put this in the, in the word order that we have in the Hebrew text, the first word of that, that verse would be, and they were passed. But the, the term that's used there is the same term used to describe um, the Passover. It's the Passover verb that, that occurs there. So it's like, it's like right out of the gate, Moses is saying, and it passed over, you know, the amount of time. Um, but it, it suggests that, that he's, he's meaning to sound notes that sound like the song of the Exodus. So when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes. Now just a couple of notes here. Um, notice that Joseph speaks to the household of Pharaoh. He doesn't speak to, to Pharaoh directly. And there are various uh, proposals as to why he's not going into the presence of Pharaoh to make this request directly of Pharaoh. One possibility is that uh, because Joseph has been mourning his father, he may be in a state of, 
of ritual impurity that would prevent him from, from going before Pharaoh or, or, or something like that. I, I, we, we ultimately don't know, but, but um, Joseph is communicating this to, to Pharaoh through his household. And then that phrase, if now I have found favor in your eyes, uh, we've seen this phrase in other places, like back in Genesis 18 when the, uh, the three visitors came to Abraham. We saw it there. You'll also see this exact same phrase in Exodus 33 in verse 13 as Moses is pleading with the Lord to go with the people of Israel as they make their way from the wilderness up to the land of promise. So again, I, I think there are... Uh, it's, it's a note of, of something that we're going to see later in the Exodus story. If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear. And we saw this back in, in Genesis 47, verses 29 through 31. You may remember that Jacob said to Joseph the same thing that Abraham had said to his servant, Put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you will bury me in the burying place up there in the land that, that Abraham bought uh, from the Hittites. My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, so, so this is the report of what Jacob said, and now here's Joseph's request of Pharaoh. Now, therefore... Please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up. Now, the reason I emphasize the phrase go up is because in the very next chapter, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 10, uh, we'll, we'll read that the Pharaoh who did not know about Joseph, he's going to fear that the people of Israel are going to multiply and they're going to they're be too mighty for the Egyptians and they're going to go up from the land. So this Pharaoh that Joseph is interacting with is giving permission to Joseph to go up from the land. And again, it brings out the way that this Pharaoh that's interacting with Joseph, it's like he's blessing Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you, I will curse. So this Pharaoh is blessing Abraham, go up, bury your father. The next Pharaoh that we'll read about, he refuses to bless Abraham. He dishonors and belittles the people of Israel, and he's cursed under the judgment of God. So Jacob uh, makes Joseph swear. Joseph makes the request. Pharaoh grants permission, and we read there in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 6, Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father, now listen to this, with him, went up all the servants of Pharaoh. Well, the word servants is also the same term for slaves. So with Joseph go up all the slaves of Pharaoh. I mean, it's, who leaves at the Exodus? Who leaves the land of Egypt at the Exodus? All the slaves of Pharaoh leave. All the servants of Pharaoh leave at the Exodus. And, and we continue. Um, with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, you may remember that at one point, the Pharaoh says, after, after several plagues, 
He says, go on up, go, but you have to leave all your children and all your flocks and herds here. And Moses says, nope, not this time. We're taking everybody with us this time. They're all going with us. And Pharaoh says, then nobody's going. And so more plagues come, and eventually Pharaoh lets them all go. But it's just an interesting uh, use of that, that same conglomeration of people from the Exodus story. Verse 9, there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Well, this sounds like Exodus 14 when it's reported to Pharaoh that the people of Israel have fled. And what does Pharaoh do? He gets his chariots and his horsemen, and they go chasing after the people of Israel. And then this word that's rendered here, company, is the same term used in Exodus 14, verse 20, to describe the pillar of cloud and the fire and the angel of the Lord going between the two camps so that the one camp, the one company, doesn't come near the other all night long. Verse 10 when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, well, beyond the Jordan, that sounds like they're entering into the land of promise. So we've had, we've had all these overtones of exodus. Now we're going to get these overtones of conquest of the land. Uh, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. Verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning, on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. So this reference to the Canaanites, again, anticipates the conquest. So I would suggest to you here that Moses is doing something that is working, at, again, at multiple levels. At one level, he's showing us the grief and the sorrow that Jacob's earthly life has come to an end. And, there, and Joseph throws himself on his father. He weeps over him. He kisses him. But at another level, Moses is saying, death is not the end of God's promises. Death is not the end of God's promises. And, and I'm not the only person to suggest these things. From ancient times, Christians have looked at these passages and for instance, John Chrysostom, commenting on the way that, that Jacob dies at the end of, of Genesis 49, the way that we read there in verse uh, 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And it seems almost stately, almost as though he's completed his course, he's finished his race, he draws his feet into his bed, he breathes his last, and he says goodbye. And then it's not that everything has come to an end, and all his hopes are lost, and everything that he had to live for was over. No, no. Look at what the last verse says there in, in Genesis 49, 33. He was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. There are people who have gone on before into death, and Jacob was gathered to them, and, and like the author of Hebrews said, died in faith, looking forward, looking forward to the resurrection. And in response to this, Chrysostom, Chrysostom wrote this. He, he wrote that uh, whereas uh, there, there are these, these almost vague expectations of resurrection that we see here in Genesis, it's even better for us where he says today... For us, thanks to the grace of God, since death has been turned into slumber 
and life's end into repose. And since there is a great certitude of resurrection, we rejoice and exult at death. Like people moving from one life to another. That movement from one life to another, I think, can be seen in the way that we're going from one story to another as we end Genesis and anticipate Exodus and from one life, the life this side of the resurrection, to another on the other side of the resurrection. You know, this is what will enable us to be faithful in a contested situation. Our hope in the resurrection of the dead is what will make us able to maintain our confession of faith, to maintain the Scripture's teaching, and to live, to make it so that for us, to live is Christ, so that death can be gain. Death is gain because we go into a better country. And life is Christ, meaning we're seeking to be faithful to God, we're seeking to lay down our lives for the sake of the kingdom. That's what we live for. And there's this great statement in Revelation 13 where having depicted this beast in Revelation 13, which is symbolic of this government, this this, uh, empire, this world power that is given authority to, to conquer God's people, to put people to death for being faithful to the gospel. John writes this. In in Revelation 13, verses 9 and 10, he says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. John is saying, look, if being faithful to Christ, when the beast arises with power to kill and to imprison, if being faithful to Christ means that you're to be taken captive, well, you're going to captivity. If it means you're going to be killed for the gospel, well, with the sword you will be slain. And then he says, in the next words, the last words of verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. It's like he's saying, do you believe or not? This is a call for endurance. This is a call for faith. We know these things are coming. How do we endure them? We endure believing God's going to raise the dead. And all through the book of Revelation, John is is showing that that Satan can't make God's people stop confessing the faith, and he's showing that Satan and all his powers can't keep God's people dead. God will raise them from the dead. So we see this resurrection hope here in the death and burial of Jacob. And then uh, in verse, uh, verses 12 and 13 of Genesis 50, we read, Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. So they were faithful, obedient sons. Verse 13, For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. They buried him in the place that they owned as a burying place. And the significance of that is that this is the first little plot of ground that the people have of the land of promise. All they have is a burying plot. That's all they've got, but they're not giving up on it. And death is not making them say, well, let's just be buried in some fabulous pyramid in Egypt. No, no, Egypt is not the land of promise. And a pyramid is not the destiny, as as fabulous as it may look in the eyes of the world. The land of Canaan is the destination. So as unimpressive as that cave must look 
That's where we're going. That's where we're going to bury the patriarch. And then verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. This is what he had promised Pharaoh he would do. Back up in verse 5, then I will return with, all, with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Okay, so there's the death and burial of Jacob. And I just have one, one more quote for you from John Calvin here. Calvin wrote concerning death and our, our uh, looking and thinking forward to it. He said, we shall not deem it grievous to leave this failing tabernacle when we reflect on the everlasting abode which is prepared for us. So we don't, we don't want to hasten our death, but we also don't want to think that, that this life is all there is. We want to recognize that the new heavens and the new earth are, are going to be glorious, and the resurrection body is going to be more magnificent than we can imagine. And it's, it's these kinds of reflections that enable, I think, Jacob to put everything in order, draw his feet into the bed, and breathe his last, and be gathered to his people. And that brings us to this next section of text, which, again, is going to point beyond itself to the gospel. So what, what I'm suggesting to you here is that the death and burial of Jacob points beyond itself to the exodus from Egypt, the conquest of the land, which again points beyond itself to the salvation that God is going to accomplish in Christ and the new heavens and new earth, which is going to bring about the fulfillment of the conquest. And so also with Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. This is going to point beyond itself to a greater Joseph who forgives even more guilty uh, kinsmen. So Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And that term that's rendered, it may be that Joseph will hate us. This is the same term that we saw in Genesis 49, 23, when it says the archers bitterly attacked Joseph, shot at him, and harassed him severely. And that term was also used to describe the conflict between Jacob and Esau when it says back in Genesis 27, 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And so by reusing this term, it's like Moses is saying, you should remember all of this conflict between brothers across the book of Genesis. Think on the way that, that Cain murdered Abel and then... Uh, Ishmael was mocking Isaac, and then Esau wanted to kill Jacob, and then uh, Joseph's brothers, they, they, they did this to him, and they sold him into slavery. Think about all that fraternal enmity and conflict. And the brothers are thinking about this, and they're afraid what's going to happen. So verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph. Again, it's like the previous episode where uh, Joseph doesn't speak directly to Pharaoh. Now the brothers don't speak directly to Joseph. They send a message saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph. Now this is coming, this is coming not only from Jacob, but also from the brothers. So if it's the case that the brothers have not made full repentance up to this moment, now they're going to do it. Now they're, now they're going to make a full accounting of the sins that they've committed. 
through the words of their father. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And then they repeat, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. I think this indicates that these brothers are really repentant. These brothers are really repentant, and they've come to identify themselves not as, you know, ancient Near Eastern herdsmen who are trying to make a name for themselves, trying to grow their little mini kingdoms. They've come to identify themselves as the servants of the God of your father. And so perhaps, you know, we saw as Jacob prepared to die, and, and I suggested to you that he called Reuben and Simeon and Levi to repentance. Maybe they've at last repented. And, and they're saying to their brother, please forgive our transgression. And then they identify themselves as the servants of the God of your father. If you're here this morning, I wonder if you've come to a moment where you're ready to talk this way. Where you're ready to say to the Lord, to whom to whom you must give account, please forgive me. I want to be someone who serves you with my life. If, if you want to experience what we're about to read, this forgiveness that Joseph is going to extend to his brothers, you must come to that point. If you don't come to that point where you're ready to say, I'm in the wrong, I transgressed, I sinned against you, Lord, and my... My only hope, I can't make it right. There's nothing I could do. There's no sacrifice I can offer. There's no repayment I can make. The only thing I can do is come to you and say, please forgive me. I want to be one of your servants. If you'll come to that moment, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and God can save you because of the work of the greater Joseph, because of what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. Look, look at what happens here. Now in verse, uh, verse, middle of verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. There, there could be all kinds of things prompting Joseph's weeping. He could be weeping with relief. He may have been, he may have been profoundly encouraged by Judah, and he may have been looking at some of these other guys thinking, I'm not sure that scoundrel is sorry yet for what he did to me. How am I going to... How am I going to address this? What else do I need to do to bring him to a place where he's right with God? And then the confession of sin is made. The appeal for forgiveness is made. And Joseph could be weeping with relief and joy over this. And then in verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him. Again, fulfilling the dreams that Joseph had about how they would do just this. And they said, behold... We are your servants. So they're not coming making demands. They're not coming uh, saying, you have to forgive us. Dad said so. There, there's nothing like that going on here. They're coming in saying, we will serve you. We recognize that we're guilty before you. The only thing that we can appeal to is your mercy. And we are servants of, of the God of your father. And we will serve you. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
I, I think what Joseph is communicating is clearly articulated in Romans 12 when Paul says, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for God's wrath. As it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And, and Joseph has been fearing God and trusting God and believing the promises all through this story. And now he responds appropriately, it's not mine to avenge wrongs. Don't, don't be afraid. I'm not in the place of God. He's, he's ready to forgive his brothers. He says here in verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And just reflect for a moment again, him being thrown into that pit and them, them later saying, did we not ignore his cries when he pled with us? And, and think again of Psalm 105 saying that they put an, ar, an iron collar on his neck and they put his feet in shackles. And then think of him thrown into the pit when Potiphar's wife makes the false accusation and he's, and he's sent into prison. And, and now he's saying, you brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is, this is Joseph living out and attesting to his belief in Romans 8.28, which hasn't even been written yet when Joseph lives this, hasn't been written when Moses writes this, but it's true, God works all things together for good for those called according to his purpose. I think one of the hardest things for us to do as Christians is to believe that in the midst of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. God works all things together for good. As I was reflecting on this, I, I couldn't help but think of the, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, listen to this, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. All things must work together for my salvation. We're going to face all kinds of disappointments in life. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to fail in all kinds of ways. We are going to sin. We're going to blow it. We're going to do things that we regret, that we look back on and we say, if I had it to do over again, I would not make that choice again. And we have to believe that even those things, God is working together, those things for good. God meant, God meant what happened to Joseph for good. This is just a fundamental belief in the goodness and the providential sovereignty of God to bring to pass his purposes in our lives. Uh, verse 20 continues. Joseph says, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And 
I, I, I redid this search just this morning. You know, there's only one other occasion in, in, I think, the whole of the Old Testament, definitely in the book of Genesis, where this particular expression, uh, be kept alive, occurs. And it's back in Genesis 6 in verse 19. The flood narrative. God gave Noah the instructions about the ark so that many people, or so that, you know, so that the people and the animals would be kept alive. And now Joseph is saying, God sent me down into Egypt so that many should be kept alive. And, and the, the reuse of this expression ties together Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers, having suffered at their hands, and then, as it were, being raised from the dead to reign over a bunch of Gentiles. That is tied with the deliverance that's accomplished through the flood, through the ark. It, it's as though the salvation God accomplished through Noah is tied to the salvation that God accomplishes through Joseph, and both of these together now point forward to the salvation that God's going to accomplish in Christ to keep people alive. So that many should be kept alive as they are today. Verse 21, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Again, you remember in Genesis 37, they, they could not speak peacefully to him. And now he's speaking kindly to them. So the book of Genesis shows us all this fraternal conflict, which was resolved when the brother who was sold into slavery, who was reported dead, who was then falsely charged and wrongly punished. And he suffered all that. And, and it's really a lot like Isaiah 53. Through oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He suffered all that. I think Isaiah probably has in mind Joseph when he writes those words. And, and then he's exalted to prominence. And Isaiah 53 goes on to say, he will see his seed. Look at what we read next about Joseph here in verse 22 and following. Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph, lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So I, I think that, the, that Isaiah is thinking about Joseph when he refers to uh, this suffering servant seeing his offspring as, as Joseph does here at the end of his life. And then we read in verse 24 of Genesis 50, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Look back at what Jacob had said back up in verse 5. I am about to die. And then Joseph says, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. There's the exodus from Egypt and that uh, the author of Hebrews says. He gave instructions concerning the exodus from Egypt. He will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob... Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. Back up in uh, Genesis 50, verse 5, his father, my father made me swear. So what, am I draw what I'm drawing attention to is the way that the very things that Jacob did, he makes his sons swear, and then he says, I'm about to die. Now Joseph is doing those same things. And then in Jacob's case... We saw what looked like the exodus from Egypt. They go up, all the servants of Pharaoh, they go up to, you know, to the land of promise and they encounter the Canaanites. Well, now Joseph is anticipating a redo, I think, of that same going up out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. 
Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. That, that statement, uh, you shall carry up my bones from here, is repeated in Exodus 13, 19, when they do it. When they do it, when they carry up the bones of, of, of Joseph at the Exodus, they quote uh, Genesis 50, verse 25. And then verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, this is, this is very interesting. I'm not sure exactly what to, what to make of this. But Joseph died at 110, and then in, in the next book in Exodus, Moses is going to come on the scene, and then after Moses is going to come Joshua. Well, listen to this. Listen to the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua 24 Verse 29, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died being 110 years old. And then right after that, in verse 32, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. So it's, it's curious that Joseph would live 110 years, and then he would give instructions concerning his bones. And then here's Moses, and then after Moses is Joshua, who lives 110 years, and then they reference the bones of Joseph. We look forward to the city that is to come. The death of Jacob anticipates the resurrection of the people of Israel. The death of Joseph anticipates the exodus from Egypt. The details of the lives of these, these patriarchs, they point beyond themselves to the salvation that God will accomplish on behalf of his people. And, and I think thereby we could say for them, to live was Christ, as the details of their lives pointed beyond those things to God's greater work of salvation. So also for us. This is the way we have to view our lives. We have to make a conscious choice. I'm going to think about my life this way. The details of my life point beyond my little life to this greater story of salvation that God has accomplished in Christ. So that for us to live is Christ. So that for us to die is gain. We live for that age to come. That greater city. That glorious day. And this will make it, hopefully, so that, so that we'll be able to face death as Jacob and Joseph do. So that if, as John writes in Revelation 13, so that if anyone is to be taken capti captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for faith and the endurance of the saints. Let's pray together. Father, we can't work up in ourselves this level of commitment. What has to happen for us is a supernatural, miraculous, life-giving new birth. Lord, we can't stir ourselves up to be so committed that we hang on to the end, but you can make us alive. You can raise us from the dead spiritually. You can make it so that we will never deny you. And Lord, I pray that for everyone in this room, that would be their experience. I pray that they would experience you opening their eyes, 
quickening their hearts, removing the veil, making them experience new life, regeneration. And Lord, I pray that this would not just result in us keeping the faith, though we definitely want to do that. I pray that it would also result in us turning from the love of sin to the love of holiness and from enmity and disobedience to a readiness to forgive, a willingness to confess where we're wrong, a desire to make peace by extending apologies when we need to, by seeking forgiveness. Lord, make us Make us people who, so far as it depends upon us, we're able to live at peace with all because we've been born again and we've been shown such mercy and we're so ready to forgive. Words can't do this, Lord, but your spirit can. Your spirit can take your word and do more than we can ask or think. And I pray that you would, in Christ's name, amen.